And there starts to become a real logic in the narrative. The more you do and the more you trust the narrative, the more the narrative just builds itself. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, my guest today on Rights for Women is Shankari Chandran. Shankari was raised in Canberra and spent a decade in London, working as a lawyer in the social justice field. She eventually returned home to Australia, where she continued her work with the community sector to understand how laws failed the vulnerable, including our First Nations communities here in Australia. For 10 years, Shankari also worked for the international law firm Allen and Overy, LLP, as the head of pro bono and community affairs, managing teams across the firm's 31 offices that executed a global pro bono strategy. The work ranged from ensuring representation for detainees in Guantanamo Bay to policy development for the UK government. Shankari's writing mirrors her passion for elevating the voices of the marginalised. She writes about the erasure of dispossession and the connections we seek as a result of it. And that's nowhere more evident than in her new novel, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens. Shankari's first two novels, Song of the Sun God and The Barrier, have been short and long-listed for international literary awards and have been optioned for film and television. The third release, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, is receiving rave reviews. It's a story about family and memory, community and race, but it's ultimately a love letter to storytelling and how our stories shape who we are. I'll let Shankari tell you a little more about it as the interview progresses. Shankari, welcome to Rights for Women, the Convo Couch. Thanks so much, Pam. I'm really excited to be here. Great to have you on. And I've been really enjoying reading your latest release, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, which we're obviously going to be chatting about today. But before we do get on to that, could you tell us a couple of things, really, how you came to be a writer and how you got to the point where you are now, where you've just had your third book published? I think, Pam, for me, like many writers, I've loved writing since I was a child and have very clear memories of hiding away and journaling these sort of angst-ridden missives to myself, which at the time I thought were both profound and poetic, and turns out they were neither. And I did that throughout my life, but never really had the courage to engage with anything longer than a short story. And then fast forward the obligatory 10, 20 years of working as a, as a lawyer, and I was taking my first break from the workforce in 20 years and about to have our fourth child. And I gave blogging a go, really as a way of, of keeping an, a diary again of our move. We'd moved from London to, to Sydney or moving back from London to Sydney and to create with our four children here. And the, the blogging was a way of just trying to understand our place in our old home, which was now the new home of our extended family. And that gave me the confidence to try to give that one great novel that every person or every lawyer thinks that they've got hidden away inside them. And I 
yeah, I just, I basically jumped in feet first, perhaps incorrectly, and in retrospect, think that I would have done myself a far um, greater service had I have done a series of writing courses, which I then did after the first draft oh, okay. of the first so manuscript. Oh, around, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, it was, it, what then followed was 30 very painful rewrites, and, and my sort of self-esteem really bottoming out. I could barely see daylight from that, that very dark place. And then just learning to start over and to keep going. And so I'd ha- I was fortunate enough to connect with places like Writing New South Wales, the Australian Writers' Centre, writers and writing groups. And just, I don't know, writers are great people, right? We are an ecosystem of support for each other. And so to learn from really good people and to then, with humility, keep going and be willing to listen to the criticisms of which there were plenty and to try to learn from that. And so in terms of my sort of pathway to writing, I wrote that first manuscript, sent it out into the world very proudly, got rejected a good 35 times at least. I think I probably stopped counting after about 30. Couldn't understand what the problem was because I thought it was excellent, yeah, but yeah, clearly, yeah. clearly it wasn't. <laughs> and then really listened to the feedback and the advice that I was getting back from people and from, from agents and from publishers who were really kind enough to take the time to tell me that it had potential, but that it, it needed to be better. It needed to be more and that there is a real art to constructing a narrative and it's not just about the language it's not even necessarily just about the characters it's Mm. all of those things including a very powerful narrative that has to be driven um, by something that's got to be an engine to the story and yeah I went back to basics and was eventually able to get that book I, I sent it out into Australia into the Australian market and the second time around with the thankfully under the stewardship of of an agent and so I'm represented by Curtis Brown and Tara Wynn, they're my agent, who I just feel any day now Tara's actually going to fire me, but she has been <laughs> with me. You know, I know that feeling. I feel yes, the same right? way. I keep I waiting think, for the call from my agent too. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so Tara has been with me since, you know, since 2014 and she has believed in me since then, despite all the ups and all the many downs. And so she sent it out into the Australian market as well at that point. And this was the new version of it, the new and improved version. And and it actually at that point I did get feedback, which you will which you will remember now having read Chaitanya Cinema Gardens. I received the feedback that my protagonist Maya receives about her first novel. Oh, uh, yeah. Which, yeah, which is that the manuscript was very well written, had engaging characters, but was not Australian enough for this market and that they wouldn't be able to sell it in Australia. Mm. And Actually, that was I, might, I might stop you there for a minute, Shankri, because I was going to read this passage later, but just so people know what we're talking about, can I read that little passage Please in the do. book right now? As I said to you before we started recording, I was rereading bits last night and I came across this one and and I absolutely love it. So it's Cinnamon Gardens, 1984, and we are going to tell everyone what the whole book's about in a minute. Maya had written hundreds of thousands of words. With Zakir's help, she extracted and edited the best ones into a novel. He sat with her night after night, urging her not to throw the words away, but to find ways to make them better. Finally, she submitted the novel to every agent and publisher she could find in the heavy Sydney phone directory. She and Zakir spent hours in the nursing home's office, photocopying the typed manuscript and putting it into envelopes. Together, they took the envelopes to the post office and posted the manuscript into the wind, wishing it a a fruitful journey. Nine envelopes were posted and over the next six months, she received eight envelopes back with polite letters of rejection. One had not even bothered to reply. The letters were all variations of the first one. Dear Mrs Ali, 
Thank you so much for your submission dated 12th of August 1984. We enjoyed reading your work. It was very exotic. But while it is well written and engaging, no one will read it and no one will buy it. Unfortunately, we are unable to make you an offer of publication. Sakia made her call each publisher and ask for feedback. Feedback will help you improve, he said. Feedback crushed her. It was always the same. There's no readership for your kind of work here. It's too ethnic. Perhaps seek a publisher in India. Oh, that's right. Sorry, you're from Sri Lanka. Excellent tea, excellent cricketers. Who knew they were so violent? Sri Lankans know, Maya replied, and I want the world to know that's why I wrote this story. So there's so many things we could discuss there. We might come back to some of them later, but it's obviously a similar experience in many ways to your own. Yeah, very much. Thank you for reading that. Let's stay friends forever, Pam, and we can just keep talking about books. Um, <laughs> yours and mine and everybody else's. My, that's my even more favourite topic, everybody else's <laughs> books. And so that was, yeah, that was my path to publication or my path to rejection. And then with that, I approached a publisher in Sri Lanka and he, he snapped it up in, within a weekend. And he was a very small, yeah, he essentially got it on a Friday and he tried to sign me on the Monday. And wow. he, he said, this is a, a beautiful book that tells the Tamil story. And that is not a story that has been told very much in Sri Lanka, where it isn't safe to tell that story, or indeed in the rest of the world, where the Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora is coping with so many other things that they we aren't necessarily giving time and effort to the telling of those stories. And that the sort of human rights story and the, the injustices um, around what happened in Sri Lanka during the war, so much of that had been suppressed. And so for me as a Tamil, living in the diaspora and having escaped that conflict because of the courage of my parents and my grandparents, I felt like I had a responsibility and a duty to try to tell one aspect of that story and to preserve those memories. Initially, I was attempting to do it for my own children on the basis that my children are unlikely to ever listen to me about anything. But if they read it, in, but if they read it in a book, they, they might remember it. True. Um, and so I put it down in novel form. Here's some fiction, children. And so I was initially trying to preserve all those memories and that mm-hmm. history, that culture, that richness for them. And then as I continued to write, I felt maybe this would have a place more widely, you know, outside my home. And even in the mainstream, it would be wonderful if it was read in the West so that people could understand what had happened to us and why people are forced to leave Sri Lanka sometimes on mm. boats and forced to create a new home and the way in which they do that. So that was that so first was that, novel. Sorry, was that in 2014, did you say? Yes. So that was right. in Yeah. And so yeah. you had approached publishers here and, and obviously through your agent and everything. And so can you just rewind about what sort of feedback you got on that book, you know, at that point? Do you know ex- pretty much exactly what Maya received? Mm. So she was, so I was told that there was no market for the novel here. It wasn't Australian enough and that it wouldn't sell, that they wouldn't be able to sell it. And I felt really grief-stricken by this because I am Australian and I think that mm. Australian stories are stories told by Australians. So if I'm Australian, which I am, then this is an Australian story. And it's a story of colonisation, um, of genocide and war. It's a story of forced migration and the creation of home. And to me, what could be more Australian? That is one of many yeah. Australian stories. And so I must say, I did feel really, I, just felt, I actually felt grief. That was the word that mm. I was experiencing and a sense of, of being reminded that, I, that there are parts of Australian society that don't think we have a place here. Equally, there are so many parts of Australian society 
that fully recognize and embrace all of us and build that multiplicity of identities and create space generously and lovingly for that multiplicity of identities. Mm. And so a lot of, the, of the, those feelings and those themes are what I then go on to explore in Chai Time at Simlin Gardens, which no doubt will come to shortly. Um, we will. We will. Yes. And so when, so in terms of pathway to, to, to publication, having now worked with the Sri Lankan publisher, so he took the book on, he published it in Sri Lanka and then was able to, you know, he sold it globally as it were in that he posted it to people globally if they wanted to buy it through his right. website. They're the lovely little publisher operate out of their garage and he was posting books fundamentally to the Tamil diaspora in Canada and the UK and friends of mine and cousins of mine around the world who've been great advocates for me would go and talk, talk to their local bookstore in Chelsea or in Watford and say, can oh, you get a box brilliant. of this book in? And it, you know, it received actually, at least in South Asia, a huge amount of support and amongst the diaspora. And and with that, I had just thought I would write one novel and that would be it. And those are, as my husband laughs, sometimes without humour to himself, famous last words. Um, <laughs> because by then you're addicted to writing, right? You're, you've started to write and now you can't stop. And so as soon as I'd finished that first manuscript and, and gave it to Tara, I, was, I had begun working on, on a new novel. But I had also felt I did want to write something with themes that might resonate in a more contemporary manner or and with a more contemporary audience. And I love post-apocalyptic fiction. It is just my guilty pleasure. Oh, um, really? Yes. And I'm a yeah. bit of a secret prepper as well. Like I'm always secretly concerned that the world is about to end. And is my run bag ready? Are the children ready to drop their to drop Lego at them at a moment's notice and go to the safe house that I've prepared? I really wanted to explore that narrative form. And and, and equally, I had been so immersed in the gen in this real-life genocide of the Sri Lankan Tamil people that I needed to break away from the literary form and that historic fiction form. And I needed to break away from reality and do something that almost felt like fun. And so I chose the post-apocalyptic novel because what could be more fun than the end of the world? Oh, yeah. And, and, and I, I know you feel me. And so what I decided to write was this novel about a situation, you know, it's 2040, the world has been destroyed by uh, a global pandemic and, and global religious wars that have converged. And in the aftermath, the West has asserted itself over the East and restored order by creating a global vaccination program. And there is a wall erected between the Western part of the world and the Eastern part of the world. And in this global vaccination program, the West adds something to the vaccine that goes to the East that damages the faith center of the brain. And it essentially eradicates the, the religions of the East and the, the Eastern memory of their religion and therefore a lot of their culture. And the, they've attempted to do this in order to create order and to restore peace because the religion of the East were blamed for this, this global apocalypse. And so it's an exploration, right, of, of mm. colonization, of Western imperialism, of power, of contemporary power, but the historic origins of contemporary power, all told through the sort of frame of a rollicking bid post-apocalyptic thriller uh, with a very handsome protagonist who initially was based on my husband, who was called Zakir Ali, a name you will remember. Yes. And, and then because I was by that stage, had started to receive this feedback about Song of the Sun God, I decided 
again, with, with a very heavy heart, I decided that I would change my protagonist from Zakir Ali, who was South Asian, hot and looked like Karen, to somebody who was actually white and from the US and was called Noah Williams. Okay. And yeah, and I just thought, look, I really do want to be a, a jobbing author, a writer. And in order to get published, I think that this is what I might need to do. Therefore, I will do it and see what happens. And maybe this will enable me to keep writing. And so with that, I was able to secure a, a publisher at Pan Macmillan. And Alex Craig there actually at Pan Macmillan signed oh, yeah. me. Yes. And Alex then went on to Ultimo. And That's she's right. Been, okay. Yes. Yeah. And she has been my pathway to publication. Because actually it was Alex who also gave me some of the most helpful feedback on Song of the Sun God when it was in manuscript form. And and it was her feedback that really helped me take it from what was basically a barely hidden memoir of of three generations of Sri Lankan Tamil women's migration to Australia. She helped me take it from that to something that had a very strong narrative behind it. And so Alex has remained a, a friend and a colleague. And so after Pan Macmillan published The Barrier, I then wrote another manuscript called, which was a, a, a political thriller set in Sri Lanka in 2009. And it explored the role of superpowers and of foreign governments and countries in that civil war. And again, it, it was a, a sort of metaphor of the way in which superpowers can play God in different countries and the impact that that has on real people's lives. And so it looked at the rise of China and the fall of the US in the region. And I appreciate from that pitch, it probably doesn't sound very exciting. Publishers agreed with you because I couldn't find a publisher. I'm definitely seeing, I'm seeing the threads that are linking all these books despite the different genres. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for saying that because I see the threads and I love Mm. that you can see the threads because I think sometimes bookstores have struggled with that because they're trying to reach the market quickly. And so you've yeah. got to make it as easy as possible for them. It's the, the genre box, isn't it? You know, exactly. What genre are you in? And and stay in that box type thing because we can't cope if we've got to explain that you write across different genres. That's, ah. yeah. And I understand that. I totally get that. And I have not made it easy for them. But thankfully, they're still with me on this journey. Um, and so after I finished writing the, Phantom, this, the thriller called The Phantom Limb, I hesitate to say that name because... My publisher's at Ultimo. He always teases me for that name. He does not like it. Um, <laughs> Who's your publisher at Ultimo? Is it Robert? Robert. Walker? It's yeah. Robert. Yeah. So Robert gives me a hard time about that title and I give him a hard time back. And so I'm like, if you don't like it, you name it. But the, so then after that novel was, or manuscript was rejected, then in a staggering display of optimism, I went on to write yet another manuscript and I should have gone back to, to full-time law. And I only went back to part-time law because the Blake Becker Trust and Create New South Wales very generously gave me some funding, which is as you, so essential for emerging authors or authors at any stage of their careers. And with that, I was able to work four days a week and write my, and work right my, one day a week because it is work and we are constantly having that battle with the world that mm. what we write that writing is a job and I was able to give one day a week to the writing and of course every other waking moment that I could squeeze in between right. and 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 that was when I started Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens. Fantastic so that brings us to Chai Time very nicely, probably similar in more ways to your first novel than your second novel, The Barrier. But there are definitely those threads which I can see about globalisation, Western political power and then colonisation, all those sorts of things. But for people who may not have heard yet of Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, could you tell us what it is about? I would love to. 
Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens follows the lives of the residents and staff at a nursing home in a fictional suburb in Western Sydney. It's set against the rising racism of contemporary Australia, but flashes back to the lives of the elderly residents decades before in our ancestral homeland of Sri Lanka during the country's civil war. The novel is about the stories the residents and the staff tell themselves and each other to keep their memories and culture alive. It celebrates the way we build communities in our new homelands and how we hold on to our old ones. It's my love letter to storytelling and my love letter to Australia. And so beautifully written too and just wonderful characters who I'm going to ask you about. So having written that initial Song of the Sun God, which is obviously very steeped in Sri Lankan history and political events and things like that, when it came to writing this one, what was your sort of mindset in terms of starting a new story around those same ideas? I knew um, that I really wanted to explore race in Australia and I have been thinking about race and identity in Australia for a long time, actually since I was a child, because it's very um, apparent to you in both wonderful and awful ways that Mm. you are different. And particularly as a child of the 80s, and we migrated to Australia in the late 70s, so very shortly after the white Australia policy had ended. And then at the same time, Sri Lanka's civil war in the early 80s, the civil war kicked off. And so we were growing up watching our parents' grief and guilt over having left Sri Lanka and survived the war, but seeing what was happening in their homeland and also seeing and experiencing for ourselves their own transition to creating a new home in a country that wasn't always ready for us to be here. Mm. And I had, and then I'd gone away to London for 10 years in my 20s and early 30s and then come back with my family of four to of four children and my husband and, you know, very proudly said, this is home now. This is my home. This is where I grew up and I want to give it to you. And when we got here in 2010, you know, the rhetoric around boat people and asylum seekers, it was so xenophobic, but really couched in this language of, of border security and what it meant to be Australian uh, and a really frightening rhetoric about what it meant to be un-Australian and a very easy vilification and othering of people that did not quite fit a certain norm of what it meant to be Australian. And so that was, it was actually that sense of disillusionment and frustration and worry that began my writing journey with Song of the Sun God. And I often think of Song of the Sun God as a novel where I was trying to write my way home. I was trying mm. to write my write away a way of creating home for myself and understanding my home in Australia. Whereas, by the, and by the time I got to writing Chai Time Cinnamon Gardens, I, have, I had evolved as a writer, I'm hopefully better as a writer because I've just been writing more, I've been practicing more and felt more confident and stronger in my own voice, particularly given, you know, what I'd gone through in the journey to publication with my other novels. And so by the time I got to Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, I knew that I wanted to interrogate what it meant to be Australian and who got to decide that for us. And I wanted to take a closer look at the way that identity and race and racism was framed and who framed it to the inclusion of some and to the exclusion of others. And I'd always been very interested in the way that historical and cultural narratives are appropriated 
and the way that these narratives um, are exploited and crafted to tell a particular story mm-hmm. about the origin of a country. And that is something that happened in Sri Lanka, but it also has happened in Australia. And the, the way that historical and, co- and cultural narrative has been taken and reshaped to say, this is who owns Australia, this is who has the right to be here, but this is who doesn't have the right to be here. Mm-hmm. I had been very interested in learning about that because I'd also been working with First Nations communities as a lawyer and learning from them about their own, about their history. And I was ashamed to admit that actually what I had learned growing up in Australia had been missing very important bits of information, right? And they were, the gaps were bigger than the stories I'd been told. And it was really, I went on on an incredible and humbling learning journey working with First Nations communities. And so all of that came together. And when I first started Chaitanya Cinema Gardens, I was actually really paralyzed by fear because I thought, I almost felt with Song of the Sun God, the ambition was in the scope of the novel. It was seven decades, three generations, three continents. Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, I did craft it within a very short time frame. So I think the contemporary timeline only occurs over a month or two. It's very short. The cast of characters, there are quite a few characters, but I wanted to spend more time getting to know them within that short time frame than I was going to, then rather than stretch their lives over. Over decades. And I knew that I wanted to have a very big part of the story set in Australia, which is different for me. So I, I feel I'm involved right. as an author and feeling more confident and comfortable writing about my new home instead of my ancestral home. And so I knew that Australia would be the base for the novel and that it would flick back when necessary into the past in Sri Lanka. Mm. And I just didn't know if I had the intellectual ability to explore race properly, to do it justice. And I, I was initially really um, frightened. And then you, know, you do what you always do with writing, which is you just, you do jump in eventually. And each word leads to another word. And the characters eventually just started speaking to me. And, and then it was okay. I got to, and it actually took 50,000 words for it to be okay. And so that's, that was a long period of trying to persevere with something. And actually at the 50,000 word mark, I had to stop, put it down and almost consider quitting because I realized that I didn't love my characters and I, I wasn't in love with them. I didn't want to spend time with them inside my head constantly. I, I couldn't connect with them for some reason. And I needed to put the, the, the novel down, which I did. And I've never done this before. I put it down for close to six months And which was quite terrifying. And I did a lot of other creative projects in the meantime. I wrote a television show, which I'm now adapting with Larissa Berendt. I wrote a couple of short stories and worked on a project for the the Sydney Festival with an incredible group of South Asian musicians. So I was creatively still really working, Mm. but not on Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens. And, And then I came back to it in early 2020. And of course, early 2020, so much happened in the world. The pandemic, the Asian rage that was that that fueled around the world, the murder of George Floyd, the the spotlight on the Black Lives Matter movement, not just in the US, but now again, thankfully, in Australia. And all of that came together to to actually give me the rage and the grief um, and the optimism that I needed to complete the next 50,000 words. And I use those words carefully. It was rage and it was grief, but it was also optimism mm. because I do feel that Chai Time at Simon Gardens is ultimately a hopeful book about, about the goodness of Australians and, and the things that we can do better and the ways in which we can be better. Oh, absolutely. I, I love hearing all that, Shankri, about coming back, like putting that aside and then coming back to it. But 
doing all those other creative projects in the meantime and then having all this stuff going on in the world at the same time and how that all just this just then coalesced for you when you came back to the writing. I, I do feel really grateful to the universe because it could have gone pear-shaped, Pan. I mean, <laughs> it, I, I mean, it really could have, right? And, and it was frightening to let it go. As you'll know, mm. when you put down a manuscript, it is frightening. And you've invested so much time and effort into them, but you also don't want to, you don't want to fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy, but you also don't want to hit control or delete. And so I am very grateful to, I don't know, I'm grateful to the universe for giving me the encouragement to keep going. And at the same time, that simultaneous sense of being horrified at the way that the world works out, but also still hopeful that there are so many people and so many communities that are trying to strengthen us and to keep us together. Yeah. And there must have been, as you mentioned, that you were worried about, can I do this type thing? Can I actually pull this off? And also having had that previous experience, similar to Maya, the the passage I read out where, Mm. you know, you had another novel published since then. But were you... Were you thinking around that time too that things had maybe changed, that there was now more opportunity for diverse voices and stories to be accepted in Australia? 100%. Mm. Absolutely. I could see that by then it's some seven, eight years had gone by and and the market had absolutely changed. And it's the, and, and in fact, it's, What's changed is publishers, not the market, mm. because the market is just made up of readers, right? Now, I guarantee you, I stop anybody in the street and say to them, would you like to know about generations of a family and the terrible choices they make, the secrets they hide, and how deeply they love each other and how much they would sacrifice for each other? Do you want to know about that story? They'd say, absolutely. I want to know that story because that's my story and that's yeah. your story. That's everybody's story. So I think readers haven't changed, but I think that publishers have, and they have been driven by an awareness and a growing awareness, that I think they're a little bit late to the party, that Australians want to know more about all Australians and they want to know more about all of the world. And so I did feel more confident in that sense. And there've been so many writers who've done extraordinary advocacy in that space. If you look at Michael Muhammad Ahmed and Winnie Dunn at Sweatshop mm. and you know, the Western Sydney literacy movement, you look at Maxine Beniba-Clark, you look at Alice Pung, there's just so many authors who have been working for years, if not decades, in that space. And they have blasted that door open for the rest of us to follow through. And it's happening in other art forms as well. So there are films, right, by Sheila Jayadev. There's plays, Belvoir Street, a couple of years ago with Shakti Dharan did Counting and Cracking, a tremendous multi-generational Sri Lankan play mm. set in the, in, in the town hall of Sydney, hosted a play about three generations of Sri Lankan Tamils and Sri Lanka's Mm. history. And so all of these different artists are working in their own ways to open that narrative and create that space for the rest of us. And so all I did was walk through that door that somebody else had very courageously opened for me. But I did also think to myself, and I was really trying to get my mind comfortable with this, I did think to myself that this could be my last novel. And I know that sounds terribly dramatic. And if you've met my grandmother, then you'll know that I am terribly dramatic (laughs) and it runs in the family. However, I just I just thought I've written some novels that's been wonderful. Two were published, one was not. You're only ever as good as your last sales record. It's unlikely that Chai Time at Seven Gardens will be published. And I must come to terms with that. And so in and and in many ways that was incredibly freeing because it meant that I wrote it like no one was going to read it. Right. 
know, except obviously my parents and my and my cousins. So it, it was really liberating and it didn't have the self-consciousness of wondering, would this be published or what will readers think? I just wrote with all my rage and all my grief and all my optimism and I didn't hold back. And then at the end of it all, I gave it to Tara and said, here, could you please do something with it? And call me if you get any interest, um, but I'm, gonna, I'm going back to my day job, um, which, you know, which I've concurrently maintained, both careers floundering. <laughs> so what was Tara's reaction when she read it? Did she come back to you and say, it's great, but I think you should do this and this? Or was she just, yes, fantastic, I'm going to see who I can get it to? So Tara is notoriously hard to please. I feel like poor Tara's ears may be burning. Tara <laughs> is very hard to please. And when I give her something, I, I really do you know, gird my uterus and my self-esteem. I I just get ready. (laughs) And she came back very quickly and she said she loved it. And so if Tara loves something, then it really does. You're onto it. Yeah. Yeah, it gives me faith and confidence that this could be okay. And I try very hard, very unsuccessfully to be a practicing Hindu, which is very much about mindfulness. You're supposed to just stay right here, do your best and not think about the consequences or the outcomes of your actions. And so I paraphrase thousands of years of Sanskrit scripture, but it's pretty much that in a line. And so I was trying very hard just to stay right here. I was like, Tara, don't talk to me about it. Just do what you think you need to do with this. I'm delighted that you love it. It's extremely, and this is a new experience for you and me. And just let me know how you go. And Tara took it and did what she did. You know, she did what she does. And Robert Watkins and I have been firm friends ever since. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be working with him. And when she told me who who was going to buy it, I knew exactly who he was, obviously, because I knew exactly who he'd previously published and how he has created a very powerful platform for diverse writers in Australia and how incredibly committed he is um, to bringing those stories to the forefront of readers and bookstores and bookshelves. Mm. And he's done an incredible job and he's such a wonderful advocate. And I was just so happy and have continued to be happy ever since. Oh, that's so exciting. And I have to, I'm getting another little sneaky question I've got for you. Was this the original title for the book? I, get, I do get asked that. It was the original title. And I actually thought, when I first started writing it, it's set in a nursing home because it's based on my grand on the nursing home that my grandmother lives in. Oh, okay. In Western Sydney, where there where a lot of the people that a lot of the residents are Sri Lankan Tamil, and a lot of the people that work there, the staff are from South Asia. And so the menu is as it is in Chai Tan at Cinnamon Gardens, and they oh, celebrate great. cultural events, and they have a prayer room. And every time when I go and visit my grandmother, I take our four children with us, and we run into our cousins who are visiting their amamas and apapas, and we run into extended family and, and our family friends. And it's a community gathering. It's a party every weekend. And you'll have four generations of families in an in a, a residence room listening to their grandparents and their great-grandparents and laughing and sharing stories and learning and fighting. And then I'll take my grandmother on a walk through the nursing home and she'll point out the the residents in the different rooms and she'll tell me their secrets and their stories. And it it always begins 
five decades ago. And right. it's, you know, my grandmother is carrying grievances over the decades from what poor Auntie Shanti Segram did to her in 1952 in Colombo without even realizing it. Some passing comment <laughs> about my grandmother's aubergine curry and the feud is still going. And so all those memories are very vivid in my grandmother's mind. And these are the stories that she was sharing with us. And I thought, what a beautiful place of community and culture and what a beautiful place to set a nursing home. And my initial scenes had a a bit of whimsy and a bit of wit to them. And I thought, oh, look, you know, you could do a, a quirky nursing home drama except that I kept wanting to explore race. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that isn't quirky. And I have and- to say, Shankari, sorry, that, that, wit is, that wit is definitely in there. Like there are there's just those little touches of voice where it's just you end up with just a little smile on your face when you read some of the, the lines. So you've Thank definitely you kept that saying. in there. Thank you. Sometimes I think it's only my brother who finds me funny, but thank you. So thank you for saying that with, I just couldn't, I couldn't sustain that sort of eccentric nursing home novel that I love so much. It kept getting drawn into those darker themes and the darker Mm. places of Australia. And so the original title was really just a, I need to give this project a title. My The Keftan Brigade at the nursing home is quirky. Let's just call it Try Time at Cinnamon Gardens. That works really well. And Cinnamon Gardens is, is the suburb in Colombo where my grandmother had spent oh, the latter. Okay. Yes. And so she'd spent the latter part of her life there. And it's a very famous suburb in Colombo. So I thought, try time at Cinnamon Gardens. That sounds cool. That that sort of rolls off your tongue. And in fact, Robert very cleverly has continued that quirky motif with this exquisite cover. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, look, I've got it here. Yeah, so pretty, right? Jess Crookshank has just done a a beautiful Mm. job with that. And and when you look at it, I think you do walk here and you look at it on a shelf and think this is really pretty and this is beautiful and it's probably a feel-good story and with a cast of... Uh, of wonderful characters and it is many of those things I hope but Mm. I also think that it does explore those darker and deeper issues about being Australia and living in Australia indeed living in the world and I want so I wanted to draw you in with the cover and the title yeah yeah and then I wanted to Trojan horse you and you go oh okay there's a lot more happening here than I realized but as I said by the end of the novel I still want you to leave you know I want you to turn the last page and think this is a hopeful story. There is, there's optimism and there's love and there's community. There's all the good things that we are. There's the best of being human. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, just as you were talking about that, I thought the cover and the book and that sort of feel, that initial feel, that sort of feel-good story, but having those darker elements behind it almost, behind the door of the nursing home, if you like, is it's a metaphor really for the story itself, isn't it? The cover is there and it's beautiful and gorgeous and there's all this loveliness, but then there's so much more going on that you really have to dive into when you... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Let's just have a quick chat about some of the characters because we have alluded to the cast of characters and I mentioned Maya and Zakia who uh, were in that the little passage that I read out. Maybe well, I was going to rattle them off, but how about you You tell us who some of the characters are and maybe a little bit about you just pick and choose where some okay. of them maybe came from for you. So Maya and Zakia are the elderly couple who moved to Sri Lanka in their youth, or sorry, moved from Sri Lanka to Australia in their youth and Zakia here is suffering from post-traumatic stress after something that's happened to him in Sri Lanka. And he's an archaeologist and they are a very useful profession, as Maya's father will say. And they moved to Australia and 
come to this nursing home that is failing and they restore the nursing home. Indeed, actually, Maya restores the nursing home and she has to take on this role of family leader and she restores the nursing home and wants to build a community there because she sees its potential and in doing so, she hopes to restore her husband to, to his health and to his own happiness. They have two children and we only meet one of them, Anjali, and she, by, by the time we meet her in the present day, she is now running the nurse for her family and Maya is therefore in her early 80s. And Maya has checked herself into her own nursing home. She's decided she's had enough. I love um, that. She, she's done her duty. Yep. And now she's going to enjoy her, her twilight years, um, hanging out, playing bridge, doing yoga and writing more novels. And so Maya is a secret author. But I won't tell you how secret because I want you no. to. So Anjali or, or Anji runs the nursing home. And she is grappling with the expectations of her family. As the novel progresses, she faces a far bigger challenge, which again, I'm not sure I'll tell you. I will see if I'll come back to tell you a little bit more about that. But Angie and her husband, Nathan, are to another family unit within the sort of pantheon of characters. Ruben, I think, Ruben, I, Maya and Ruben are my favorite characters. And Ruben is a 40-something-year-old Tamil man who's left Sri Lanka as a refugee, he too has experienced grief in his own country, the loss of family as many as many Sri Lankan Tamils and in fact as many Sri Lankan Sinhalese have lost family in that conflict. He's come over to Australia to, to try to create a new life and he is an interpreter and a linguist by profession. But he works in the nursing home as a caretaker, as a mm. jack of all trades. So he gardens and he fixes things and he changes the sheets and he helps Maya. He's Maya's body man. And he, does, he he's always at her, he's just always there for her as mm. it was, anticipating her needs. And he they're very deeply connected to each other. Maya doesn't know why she's connected to Ruben. And it's only later in the novel that you learn more about that relationship. And I, I love him because I love his love of language. And I, I suppose mm. Maya and Ruben both have a love of language, which is my love of language. But I love the way in which he just quietly lives in the world with grace and generosity and such stoicism and strength. And he, he drives a lot of the action in, in the story. And then we have another couple, Gareth and Nikki. And Gareth is, you know, he is, I'm trying to work out how to frame this politely. Gareth is a middle-class, white, cisgendered, heterosexual male who does not <laughs> understand or acknowledge his own privilege, but wields it in a weaponized and malicious manner and with, with increasing malice as the novel progresses. And some of that, I didn't want Gareth to be a cartoon villain. And I tried very hard to give him humanity and and I hope that I have done that for him because what I wanted readers to see in Gareth is that there's a little bit of him in all of us and that there's a lot of him everywhere around us. Mm. And it's a very, the privilege and the entitlement of his racism, the casualness of his racism is more insidious, I think, than the overt racism that you can call out, that you can see clearly. And it, it becomes more dangerous. By the end of the novel, it becomes far more dangerous because it opens the door for other forms of racism. And I think Garrett's behavior that normalizes that kind of behavior mm. is something that I really want all of us to think about. Yes. And then Nikki, yeah. his wife, and she's the final character in the group. And, and Nikki is a doctor at the nursing home, and she is in a relationship with Reuben. So her marriage has failed. Her marriage to Gareth has failed. There's uh, a tragedy that sits between them that has resulted in that failure. And she is now having a relationship with Reuben. 
And that all of that sort of emotional entanglement forms part of um, was well, obviously is part of the story, but it's part of what leads to uh, each of their actions that take mm. us to the climax. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, well said. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard to do that without giving, without any story I know, spoilers. without the spoilers. Yeah, it's very tricky. I feel I made that sound very bland. No, Stuff does not happen. at all. Stuff no, there's happens, lots Pam. happening. And there's, and there's lots happening um, in the whole big picture. It's like you've got all the different layers. So there's the sort of macro world, which includes going back in time into the history in Sri Lanka and the trauma that some of the characters experience there. But then it gets smaller and smaller. You've got the world of the nursing home, but then you've got the world within each of the, the couples and, and characters that you're looking at. I love that there's all those little connections. It's like this web, if you like, of characters and connections. So when you sat down to start the book, how much do you go about, I guess this is going on to your writing process, did you think, okay, I need these types of characters and this type of character, or did you just start the story and they, the characters came for you? How did they appear? So I, when I was constructing Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, and this novel was much more constructed than my other two, three, than my other three novels, because I knew that I wanted to explore race and I wanted to do it carefully, or I knew that I had to do it carefully, I was frightened of getting it wrong. And whilst one could say there's no right or wrong to any of this, I, I think I did say to myself, I don't want to get this wrong. And often I think writers of colour feel a lot of pressure to, to explore those things in the right way, in inverted commas, because you feel it's such a contentious door that you're opening. And the moment that you start to explore and challenge notions of race and racism and Australia and identity, and the moment that you stick your head above that parapet and say, look, I am grateful to be here, but I also have the right to explore what that means and to criticise this country with respect and with curiosity and humility and love in my heart. That's how and why I do it. And But when you do that, you open yourself up to, to, yeah. to be fair game to some of those people that are also the characters in my novel that I didn't, that we haven't talked about, the vocal right wing, the, the people who will attack you with ferocity, but also use the right to freedom of speech to defend themselves um, and mm. protect themselves from their own bigotry, but then drop the right to freedom of speech immediately when you try to assert it and, and use that same right to talk openly and honestly about what it means to be Australian. So with that in mind, I did construct this novel much more than I I have my previous work. And so I knew that I wanted a small cast of characters. And I, it may feel like a lot to some readers, but this was, to me, this was a small and manageable group of people. And there's obviously sort of 30 other residents of the nursing home. Or, yeah, you know, the, 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 mentioned the along the way. Yeah. Yes, yes. And other, course, like, as you say, the uh, sort of other elements that come in, there's some gang stuff going on and all that. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So I, I wanted a small cast of characters. I wanted us to get to know them well. I wanted us to love them and hate them, but, and often simultaneously, because that's human nature. We, we can love and hate the people that we respect and admire and all at the same time. And I knew that I wanted to set it very much in contemporary Australia and draw on things that had happened recently. So in constructing it, I, I knew that I needed... Effectively, I knew that I needed a racist to drive a, certain parts of the action, and I, but I wanted him to be a, the kind of racist, as it were. And there are kinds of racists. When you're building racists, you can ask mm. yourself, is it the soldier who's been traumatized by war and therefore hates 
the people from the conflicts that he's just escaped? Is it is it the radical? Is it you know what kind of racist are you actually trying to build here? And I wanted to build a racist that was an everyman racist that everybody could identify with and feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. about because they recognize him, because they've been to dinner with him, because they've said those things themselves, because they've thought those things themselves, but they haven't said it out loud, because they laughed when somebody made that joke and then looked around nervously to see if anybody saw them laugh. I wanted that kind of a racist. Yeah. I then wanted, I, I knew Maya was going to be a character because I spent so long in this nursing home visiting my grandmother that I knew that I was going to have someone who was essentially me in 50 years, but so much more accomplished and better, <laughs> so much more capable. <laughs> Maya's like the version I'd like to be in 50 years. Um, well, you've got fact, 50 years to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm understating my age right now, mathematically. <laughs> So, so I knew I, Maya had just came to me. She was always there. She was always going to be the sun in this universe. And Ruben, I have loved the idea of, of wanting a, an interpreter and a linguist as, as a character in a novel for a long mm-hmm. time. And I had written this television show, like a summary of a potential TV show, uh, at the end of, t- of 2019 when I'd taken a break from Titan at Cinnamon Gardens. And one of the characters that I had toyed with, but ultimately not used, was an interpreter. And and so I knew that I wanted to bring Mm -hmm. him back, but I didn't know his history. And as I continued to write him, he revealed more of himself to me and this extraordinary history of grief and trauma, but also of strength. And the things that he's done to survive, the places that he's been to, the things that he's seen. Um, And by the end of the novel, you realise just how much he has seen and done. And the way in which he has lived with generosity and provided comfort to people who are edging towards the end of their lives in great Mm. pain. And so I had, so, so Ruben really started to write himself after a while. Um, And that's a beautiful experience when that happens. You just, you've got a keeper in that character. Yeah. Yeah. You obviously have a lot of different different things to draw on, you know, as you say, from the nursing home, from your own family and community and all that sort of thing. There are multiple points of view in this novel and we've got numerous timelines. How tricky was that to get that all happening in the final form that we ended up with? So writing Song of the Sun God was really good training for writing Try Time at Cinnamon Gardens because I did so much wrong with it. And again, there is no right and wrong, but I definitely did it wrong for Song of the Sun God. And so with Try Time at Cinnamon Gardens, I did a handful of drafts compared to the the tens of drafts that I'd had to do for my first novel. E- each novel needs to be rewritten less. And so with Try Time at Cinnamon Gardens, I knew the present day story was very conscious and it was very clear in my mind how that was going to be told. And I didn't do that thing that some authors talk about where they write one timeline completely to the end of it, then they write the other timeline and then they cut and paste that. I just don't know that I could keep track of it well enough to do it that way. And I think it's brilliant when they do it that way, but I really need to, I see a story almost like a television show inside my mind. And so I will. I would write a character's point of view and begin that. I might not get to the end of it, but I'll write hard for as much as I can and for as long as I can. And then at the end of my writing day, my Friday, I'd go to bed at night and I would literally say to myself, I wonder what Ruben's going to do tomorrow. 
and I would lie in bed and just think about either him or whoever I'd just written or whoever I felt that I could write tomorrow. And there starts to become a real logic in the narrative. The more you do and the more you trust the narrative, the more the narrative just builds itself. And you read that in these books by Elizabeth Gilbert and you're like, you know what, Liz Gilbert, you're Liz Gilbert, okay? (laughs) It's easy for you. It happens for you. And it's just not going to happen for me. I don't care what you say in Big Magic. And yet she's right. The the more that you you trust that narrative and allow it to be there, the more it will tell itself. And so it is a a very strange dance that you do between consciously constructing a time frame and a character personality because you need them to do something. I need Gareth to hurt Nikki. I need her to fight back in a certain way, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So you're consciously constructing that. But equally, they are doing things of their own volition and you're just writing it down. You're just sitting in the room trying to faithfully observe and put words to their actions and their thoughts and their feelings and to honor their experience. And that is a a beautiful way to write. It's the best kind of writing for me. It's my favorite kind of writing. And so it was a mix of both those things. And so what I found in answer to your question is that the, the jump back would often happen very naturally. Right. That that Maya would, she would feel something or see something and it would then logically take you back to her memory of a time and a place that gives you another piece in the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Because my first novel was very linear, but across seven decades, whereas this novel is much more like a jigsaw puzzle. And each chapter gives you one more piece. And I think you do know where to put that piece down and, and over time, the story becomes clearer and clearer. And I hope that over time, you keep wanting more pieces. And so it's constructed and, and conscious and unconscious in that way. Mm, fantastic. You've done a beautiful job of that whole structural thing. I love it when those time jumps happen so naturally and the characters, everything about it, Shankari, it's just lovely and the writing is beautiful. So congratulations. I've loved Thank chatting you. to you about it. And just very quickly before you go, are you working on another novel now? I am working on another novel now. It's about two women and the way that their lives intersect. Both of them have been through adversity and both of them will find um, ways to support each other and to emancipate each other that they did not expect. It's okay. set in Aus- And it's set in Australia and a tiny bit in Sri Lanka. Great. Oh, well, all the best with it. Can't wait for that one when it comes out. And where can people find you online, Shankari, if they want to connect with you? I would love you to find me. On Instagram would be the, the best place to find me. And I'm also on Facebook. Okay, brilliant. And I'll put all those details in the show thank notes you. as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you very much for having me here. I've loved it, Pam. I love the work that you do. And I'm just very excited to, to meet you and be friends for life. Of course. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com 
on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. The end.